You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics with Ali Ahmed. Welcome to the first episode of season two of the podcast. We are back after a planned break, still in the midst of the pandemic, and also in a dynamic and challenging time for race relations in North America and around the world. We will take on some of those topics throughout the season. But right now, we are trying to get a TV show made. Zarka Nawaz has dropped a trailer for her new show, called Zarka, and it needs social media engagement for its production funding. I spoke to Zarka about the show's concepts, what her aims are, and about acting in the show. We actually ended up speaking for quite a while after I stopped recording, getting more into our discussion about TV shows with brown actors, the harm caused by certain kinds of stories and tropes, and about their authenticity and how our generations looked for love and marriage. By the end of it, I may have even pitched her on hiring me for the show. It wasn't my best look, but I'm not mad at myself or that it wasn't recorded. Here's Zarka. The last time we talked was almost a year ago, a little under a year ago. And, you know, after that conversation, I thought, look, I've covered this seminal moment in Canadian Muslim television history. I will never have to talk to Zarka Nawaz again. But here we are. And the reason we're here is because you dropped a brand new web series trailer called Zarka. So I wanted you to tell me about the Zarka project and how it was conceived. Well, I think last we talked, I was going to go into stand-up comedy. And I was going to do so. My goal was to do that for a few years and to get really good at it and build a show around, you know, the traditional way a lot of stand-ups do with themselves. They do, you know, they get recognized as being really good stand-ups and then eventually make a sitcom around them. So I kind of had this notion in my head. So I was going at it strong for eight months, starting to make headway, starting to headline shows. And then the pandemic hit and that sort of ended gatherings as we know it, <laughs> which ended stand up as we know it. And that particular time I was like, oh no, like, what do I do? And a friend of mine, Claire Dunn was like, well, just start applying for television grants because now's the time to do that. So I did. <laughs> and I got what is called an IPF slash CMF trailer, which is, unless you're a Canadian and in the television industry, it's hard to understand. But what it is, is that you get a loan from the Canadian government and you have to make a trailer. And the trailer is for a series that has not been created yet. Because the idea is that so many people make web series and they go out into the world and no one sees them. And that there's what they call a lack of discoverability. So what they're trying to do is they're saying to people, okay, if you want funding to make a whole season, you have to prove to us that first of all, people will watch that season by first proving to us that people will watch a trailer of a show that you have not made yet. <laughs> so you're going, which is very confusing, right? Because when you release a trailer, people assume the series is already done. But it's part of the application process that we have to submit analytics after 30 days of release to show uh, social media engagement. And that way it will prove to the various funding bodies that you know we have indeed gone out and gotten engagement and People are aware that it exists. Thus, when the show actually comes out, we will get eyeballs to screen because there's so much competition now with, you know, so much product being put out via the various streamers. So that is the reason you are seeing a trailer for a television show or a web series that doesn't exist because we it's part of the application uh, process. Okay, so we'll have the links to that trailer 
connected with the podcast and on the website. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about the show as if it gets picked up and you make the show. So I really want to get into the concept of Zarka. So the premise is that Zarka is a middle-aged woman and learns that her ex-husband is engaged to a younger yoga instructor. And she goes onto social media and tells the ex-husband that she's going to come to the wedding with a brain surgeon named Brian. So aside from making a really great, funny show, what do you want to do with the concept? Well, the idea for the concept came a couple of years ago when the movie The Big Sick came out by Kumail Nanjiani and then Aziz Ansari's Master of None. And there were a lot of South Asian women who were writing and saying things like, you know, why is it that Muslim men, whenever they're in romantic comedies, choose the white woman? And a lot of the think pieces said that typically the white woman is the trophy, the one who's highly sought after and desired. And that's why it's happening, because it's easy to sell media to the gatekeepers if they see, you know, the white female trophy trope in romantic comedies. You know, a lot of women argued that even though The Big Sick was based on a true story, the South Asian women in that film were still depicted as, you know, reductive stereotypes with accents and, you know, very silly and kind of were thrown under the bus. And so there was a lot of kind of hurt and anger in the Twitter sphere about this film. And it really got me thinking about the whole romantic trope, because I don't think I had consciously really absorbed it, that if there ever is a person of color on television or film, they're always paired up with someone white. And why is that? And what does that say about desirability and how, you know, women of color are perceived? And so I thought I would make a satire about exactly that, about a man who has a white trophy fiance and that gets me, you know, this sort of jealous, vindictive, impulsive Muslim woman really angry. And so I decide, hey, I'll compete with your white trophy by bringing my white trophy, which is a white brain surgeon named Brian. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking like what would be on the upper echelons of, you know, whiteness. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, at least in the South Asian community, brain surgeons are considered like the highest of the medical <laughs> profession. <laughs> so it's a comedy about, you know, race relations and competing with whiteness. Like if, if white people are going to be top of the heap of romantic comedies and I'll bring mine and compete with yours and then we'll see, we'll have like a white off. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the idea behind it. And the whole idea of the conceit was how, you know, you don't see South Asian women as leads. I don't know if there's ever been in the mainstream media, a television or film where the South Asian woman is a Muslim is the lead. I've never found one. I don't know. Have you heard of any? I don't know. I mean, I guess the closest, not maybe not Muslim, I mean, the closest you get is Mindy Kaling, right? Yeah. And even her show is, she's usually with white men, as far as I know. Well, I think she's, you know, at least the, the character and the story in that show is kind of goes across the board, not particularly discriminatory. But I think the point you made about the trope is really interesting because even if you think about something like Homecoming King, you see that Hassan Minaj tries to take on the trope and, okay, so he got rejected by his white princess and proves that he still fits in with the community, but he does that by marrying a Hindu woman, but not marrying a Muslim woman. And so you still see that, okay, you have to prove that you're integrated in the society through love, but it can't be 
love for someone within your own culture. It has to be transcending those boundaries. So I think even where, say, Muslims have tried to take this concept on, you still end up falling within this idea that, you know, where's the show of where the Muslim man marries the Muslim woman and they live a normal Muslim life? I mean, the only one is, you know, your previous show at Little Mosque on the Prairie. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. At least he picked a brown woman. (laughs) (laughs) I put someone like Rami and Hassan in a different category because I still feel they are people who identify as Muslims, who are not running away from their faith, who are actively talking about issues like social justice within the communities. I didn't want to throw those two under the bus because I do feel that they are in a different category than, say, Aziz Ansari or you know, a Kumil Nanjiani, who I think self-identify as non-Muslims and are not particularly engaged in our community, which is fine. Everyone has their own take on media and where they fit in and their own personal perspectives. It's interesting. And I don't want to criticize people for their, you know, their versions of media. I just, I feel like each one of us has a different role depending on our backgrounds and our personal belief systems. And so for me, I really wanted to explore this idea love and race relations and how we explore that on television. And I, and I want to bring up those tropes and then take them apart in the series and examine them and show them for what they are. But also acknowledging that things have changed since there's been so much transparency in terms of um, how the typical male white gatekeeper of the media has allowed only male white creators of television and film to make their stories. And now I feel like there's this moment in our culture where people are calling that out and starting to actually count the shows in both film and television that are made by white people and saying, why, you know, why is it so skewed one way? Where are the other stories coming from the other communities, the other marginalized communities? So I feel like we're in this place in culture where there's a chance to get other voices out. And this is a time to make those stories and possibly be heard. So, I mean, when you talk about taking on these tropes, you are quite literally taking on these tropes as the lead actor in in the series. And one of the things I was wondering was how you being the actor would influence how the show was written. Previously, if you were writing for the show, it's writing for other actors and you can put other actors in different situations that perhaps you yourself wouldn't want to go into so you know for example would you have a a kissing scene or how edgier how far are you willing to push the boundaries because i know with the previous show little mosque on the prairie you talked about how there was a big backlash from the community and you were trying to balance your role in the community Uh, and something you mentioned in your book about the difficult situations that both you and your family were in in the mosque when the show came out so how is all that going to fit in when it's not Muslims being depicted in the show, but it's quite literally you're being depicted and it's your name on the show. That's a good question. The kids are totally freaked out, right? So for those who don't know, I have four kids and they're in their 20s now. And they're like, they ask me this question more than you do. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like looking at their father going, control your woman. (laughs) Do you not see what's happening? (laughs) You know, and he's just like busy eating his, you know, chips and going, leave me alone. (laughs) As long as you know, his marriage is fine. He's not rocking any boats. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so the kids have taken on this. No, no, no. We'll help you with this. Okay. So I know one of my kids is like, if you have to kiss someone, it'll have to be in shadow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or you can use puppets or you can use a stand-in. So it's really funny, right? Because they're 
totally freaked out by this whole idea of their mom in a romantic comedy. And so, yeah, I have kind of thought about it myself and I am still working it out in terms of, you know, what are my personal limitations? What will I do? And I can't say I've come to complete answers. I just feel like, you know, right now we're, we're just trying to get the financing together. And so those are issues that will come up later. But I mean, there are interesting questions to ask about acting and, you know, how far are you willing to go and what are the things that you will do and what are your personal limitations? Even like, you know, with hair and hijab, like, you know, what will I do for scenes in the house? And, you know, you know being in my 50s, I think I have probably a different approach to the whole hijab question than I say than I say I did in my 20s right like in my 20s it was just such a massive part of my self-identity and hair and I remember someone said to me you know if someone gave you a million dollars would you take off your hijab and I'm like no never and now I'm thinking well you know I've got a shorter finance so You're right. <laughs> it's just a and you know my whole attitude towards hijab also it, you know it changes because I'm like back in those days it was such a big deal but one of the reasons we can't even talk about hijab openly and honestly is because there are Muslim women who literally can't go to school or can't be employed because of wearing their hijab because they live in countries, even in Canada, you know, in our province of Quebec, they've passed a bill which doesn't allow women, you know, to have jobs in the federal government if, if they're wearing hijab. Because of those reasons, we can't have honest discussions because I know what will happen is someone will jump on that discussion and say, oh, see, even she said that, you know, hijab isn't mandatory or that, you know, there's different opinions and thus these women are being oppressed. So you can't even talk about it without impacting women's lives and their livelihoods and the ability to be educated. Like in France, you can't go to high school if you wear it. And it's so crazy, right? The double standards of the way white people will say, oh, look at the Taliban. They don't let girls go to school. I'm like, well, you know, a Muslim woman in France can't go to school if she wears hijab. So really, what's the difference? You're just doing the white, quote unquote, civilized version of the same thing. So it's it's hard to have those open, honest discussions about an issue because they're weaponized right away to hurt members of the community. And so I really can't even talk about it because I'm worried that it'll get out and be used against Muslim women. So the only thing I can say is that I'm not as strict about it as I was in the past for various personal reasons. And I don't think, you know, I would like to sort of maybe de-emphasize the whole, oh, I saw your hair conversation and just say, yeah, sometimes I wear it, sometimes I don't, it's not a big deal. I choose to wear it in public. Sometimes in my shows, I choose not to wear it in the home scenes. I don't really consider it a big deal. End of discussion. <laughs> and just let it go because I don't want it to become a point of discussion because it could be co-opted by forces that are not friendly. <laughs> Does that make sense? I understand, you know, the, that discussion is, is really a difficult one because there's some time sensitivity around getting the engagement on your trailer. I've actually bumped the discussion with the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims on this topic, just so I could do my part in helping get the show made. So, yeah. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you was whether you still feel as though you're a representative of the Muslim community. Is that an idea that gets manifested within the show? Or are you just more of the view that, you know, I'm an artist making the best show that I can and exploring ideas that I'm interested in? Yeah, I think that it's hard to separate the two because I am so visibly Muslim and made Little Mosque on the Prairie. So, I mean, I would obviously like to just be considered an artist making my own thing, but I also recognize that my own thing is very, very related to my lived experience within the community. So, I mean, it's hard to separate the two. To be honest, I'm a very, like, I'm not a deep intellectual thinker, so I don't have 
deep conversations with myself about my work <laughs> until, you know, I have a podcaster asking these questions. I'm like, I, I don't know, man, right. <laughs> I just do. I just do what I do because it's funny. Like I have this really strong innate need to tell story. That's hilarious. And I'm very, I've been very privileged and very fortunate to have had the ability to make a mainstream show. And I do acknowledge that it has, you know, had a huge impact on young Muslims around the world in terms of giving them you know, confidence and wanting them to feel that, yeah, people are willing to listen to their stories and hear what they have to say and that you can get your voice heard. I'm not saying it's easy, but at least, you know, it gave people the confidence to say, yeah, this is something I can do. And what surprised me more than anything was parents coming up to me and saying, my kid went to medical school and I'm so disappointed (laughs) because he or she was a really good storyteller. And I really felt that they would have made a huge impact in the media had they taken that route. And that really surprised me. But I mean, the truth is the media and film and television is a very, very hard nut to crack. And the gatekeepers are still white. And even look at book publishing and how much work has had to be done just to get people from the BIPOC communities published and getting their advances even you know remotely close to what white authors get. Yeah. It's an uphill battle. It's a struggle. Going to medical school, if you can get in, is still an easier option to make money For sure. <laughs> if you can do it. So I'm not going to lie to people out there. Like If you can get into medical school, probably you should go because you could probably finance your own art after, you know, on the weekends. <laughs> between your surgeries. Or I guess the best option is to marry a doctor, right? And that lets lets you do a bit of everything. Or marry someone, yeah. Oh my God, it's just so terrible. I mean, I just hate to pop people's bubbles, but going to film school is not the same thing as going to medical school. If you go to medical school, you will come out and make a really good salary. If you go to film school, you will not. (laughs) And that's just the reality. That is just the reality of this business. So I just don't want people to feel that it's easy because it's not, it's really hard. Even for me, somebody who's already made a show, you would think making a second show, I wouldn't have to be doing all going through all these hoops, but it still wasn't the same for me versus my white colleagues who also made shows. Like they were offered other deals and, you know, they went to Hollywood and they got on other shows and, and, and those opportunities didn't come my way for various reasons. And systemic racism and misogyny and patriarchy still very much exists in this industry as it exists in every industry. So, you know, you still have to contend with that. Let's go back to the show itself a little bit. So it's going to be a web series. And I'm just wondering how many of the episodes or how much of the concept you already have developed if it gets picked up? Or or is it the case that you write the episodes as it or after it gets picked up? For the applications, because we originally conceived of it as a web series with just 10-minute episodes. So part of the application process was writing the Bible. So you kind of have to know where the whole season is heading. And you have to write three episodes. So we have three episodes completely written. And we have a Bible. So we do have a very strong idea of where the first season is going, where the second season is going. And you have to be able to prove to funding bodies that there's an engine in this series that has longevity. That just won't like fizzle out after a few episodes that there's enough conflict and stakes that it can keep going for an entire season and then for several seasons. That's really important for funders to know. Okay. I guess the community now has a role in uh, helping the series get made. So what do people need to do in order to assist you in helping uh, get the show made? Because it's an IPF trailer, there's 20 teams. And what they are looking at is the analytics after 30 days of being 
you know, on Facebook and YouTube, and they're they're going to you know look at the demographics and see the number of clicks and the number of shares organically as well as paid. And so it's it started. We put it online August fifteenth, and it'll go off. Not off, but I mean, the count will stop September fifteenth. The analytical count that we have submit. So if you could share and click and spread that widely, that would be great. We also have another fund that we are applying for, which requires them to see 10% of our financing already committed. So what we are doing is we are going on LaunchGood, which is a crowdfunding platform in about a week or so, I believe we started putting together all our elements. And so if people could spread that around so that people you know who are interested in have spare cash floating around can give us some because right. we just have to raise like 10%, which is in American dollars, like $50,000. If we could raise $50,000, we'll prove to one of the funds that we have widespread support and it triggers another fund to release its money. And they want to see that because you have to prove that you are, you know, you, you do have viewers who are willing to support you. So those are the two things that we need right now. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me again. Really looking forward to seeing the show being made and, and seeing where it goes and hopefully talking to you again about it in maybe a year's time to to learn about the second season of Zarka on, yeah. uh, <laughs> on the air. No, it will be. It'll be amazing. I, like I said, I, I had not intended to make a show at all um, for years, especially not around me. So when people ask me how COVID changed my life, it literally launched my television career. I did not see that coming. So you never know what happens with life. And I'm grateful that I'm back in television and that I'm engaging with people again and talking and writing scripts and writing comedy because it's my first love. And it's so amazing to be able to go back to that after all these years. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.